Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is the fabulous, the legend, the trainer of trainers of trainers and uh, leader of uh, great salespeople, Todd Capone. So he's blushing beautifully at the moment. So Todd, welcome back. And um, could you give us maybe 60 to 90 seconds on why you're such a sales nerd? If I knew, I would be able to share it with you. I don't know what happened. But I just, uh, I find it fascinating to just look back through the annals of this profession, back when it was trusted, respected, and even admired, and to watch the pendulum go from before that, when it was terrible, to trusted, respected, admired, back to terrible, and hopefully trying to bring it back to a place where we feel really, really good about it. But, you know, my background, you know, multi-time sales leader, but full-time nerd, and I've always just been interested in how we as human beings engage, prioritize, decide, and ultimately trigger purchase decisions. And that connection between the behavioral science of decision-making and history is a combination I've never found in anybody else, and I'm, I'm proud to be the one. In fact, you've inspired me because what, what it's forced me to do, and especially since the advent of GPT, is I can now look at problems through different lenses. So through the lens of history, through historical cycles, through economic cycles, I can look at it through anthropology, uh, neuroscience, and so on. But it was your inspiration that got me going down that particular set of rabbit holes. So my wife is not very grateful. I am. And okay, so let's start out with some uh, definitions. What is sales and what is selling? Because I, I think there seems to be something of a misnomer and misunderstanding here. The thing that I always go back to is there was a time through our history, and we see this when the macroeconomic pressures go up, that we suddenly start to believe that sales is about convincing, like influence through persuasion. You're saying it's only going to get worse as the recession bites. It'll go get worse and then it'll get better, right? Like we've kind of rested on these laurels that over the last couple of years, selling has been really pretty easy. You know, the people that are in it are like, oh, sales is hard. I got a bad quota, but it's been relatively easy. And right now we're waking up to look around and go, oh, you know what? This looks <laughs> just like, and we can talk about this, but this is a mirror of 1921. If you look at 2023, it is exactly the same situation as we had in 1921, where we- so had... Describe 1921 for me. Perfect. So here's the, the thing that creeped me out about 18 months ago, that if you look through history and you look back to the period of 1914 to 1917, it looked exactly like 2020 to 2022. Actually, it looked even earlier than that. Like we go back to 20, I, I'm sorry, let's go back. 1914 to 1917 looked exactly like 2017 to 2020, right? It's slow and steady growth, you know, economic growth. There's nothing crazy going on. And then if you look at 1918 and compare that to March, April, May of 2020, exactly the same. The economy was shut down at the time here in the US. It was America joining World War I. Everything shut down. Then you come out of it, the US was not in World War I for long. And so we came out of it with a massive boom period where you had high growth, not enough salespeople to fill all the positions. 
Mm-hmm. It looked exactly like late 2020, all of 2021. Yeah. It, exactly. And then what happened? Inflation spike. Huh, that looks familiar. So mm-hmm. in 1919, you had a what they call the catastrophic inflation spike. Looks an awful lot like we've been experiencing here. Mm-hmm. And then it was followed by a downturn. Mm-hmm. And the downturn in twenty or in nineteen twenty to nineteen twenty two, it was a, called a depression. I think mm-hmm. by today's terms, it would not be. It would be just called a great recession type of environment. Yeah, looks very familiar here too. And and here's the thing that's so interesting: nineteen nineteen and early nineteen twenty, you had salesperson turnover of fifty seven percent. Wow, and that was high. Like that was mostly voluntary, meaning even the crappy reps were chasing money, right? There's a job over there for more money. Here I go, right? Looked a lot like the Great Recession or uh, resignation here. And then you go to 1921, 1922. 1921, they had 77% salesperson turnover. And that was involuntary. And last year we had 72%. Was it 72%? Like I saw it. Actually, it was 72% of the entire US workforce looked for a new job and applied for a new job. So huge uncertainty. Exactly. And then 1922 was 85%. Wow. So it didn't get better before it got worse. (laughs) And and so, like, that's the thing that's. And so, back uh, 18 months ago, I started ringing this bell. You and I might have even talked about it, where I was like, (laughs) hey, everybody. This is teeing up to yeah. be a like catastrophic situation for the sales profession where yeah. you're going to see a lot of turnover and selling is going to get harder. And we've been resting on our laurels. we got to start picking up the axe again and our muscles aren't ready for it. And that's yeah. exactly where we are right now. So a couple of words of advice in terms of reading. You have to read The Fourth Turning by William Howe and uh, Neil Strauss. And that basically cycles through about 800 years of historical cycles, including the effect it has on society of having a boom and a bust uh, on um, behavior and values. Then Making Sense of the Changing World Order by Ray Dalio, that looks at about 800 years of economic cycles Mm -hmm. in tandem. Those two together give you quite a clear picture of um, what is likely to happen. If you can be bothered to put the effort in and extrapolate some of this out, it actually represents a massive opportunity for a few who are prepared. And with the advent of the AI technologies that are now ubiquitous and cheap as chips, I mean, 20 bucks a month for that capability is insane. So what's your take there? Because I suspect Similar sorts of things happened. I I know that you've just released this fascinating article on the history of spam. So those of you who are listening, make sure you read this because it goes back, what, 30 years? Well, it goes back to 1969 and when ARPANET started its messaging and it goes to 1971 when Ray Tomlinson sent the first email. It, It talks about 1978 when Gary Thurk kind of accidentally sent the first spam message and it resulted in almost $12 million in revenue. It was so like there's, <laughs> there's a lot of really interesting stuff in it. Excellent. Okay. So th- there'll be the link in the blurb as well. So Marcus, remember to put the link in the blurb. Now tell me this then, what is the purpose of selling? Well, yeah. So to go back, you know, it was, we went from this, Hey, selling, 
if there's a quote from Arthur Sheldon, his book in 1911 called The Art of Selling. And his quote is, true salesmanship is the science of service. Grasp that thought firmly and never let go. Right? Like that quote is the greatest, right? True salesmanship is the science of service. And it was the theme in 1916 at the World Sales Congress, which was the first of its type sales conference that was attended by 3,000 people in Detroit, Michigan. And it was keynoted by then U.S. President Woodrow Wilson. Uh Service, service, service. Meaning we as human beings don't buy when we're convinced. Uh If we do, we're probably pissed about it a few minutes later. We as human beings buy when we can predict. We are prediction machines and the best salespeople understand that and are able to empathize with the individuals that they are selling to, to help them predict. And that goes back to this concept of transparency, right? The pros and the cons. Be an advocate and a partner to your your buyer. You're not there to convince them. You're to aid them in their journey to help them achieve their outcomes. And so bottom line is, I believe that true salesmanship, as Arthur Sheldon said, is the science of service. Grasp that thought firmly and never let go. And yet we keep letting go. Okay. So what is buying? Let's look at it through the other lens, which is rather important. Well, what is buying? So that's a that's a deep question, Marcus. Um, you know, I keep going back to this idea that it's such an important question because we as sales like a sales community got lost along the way. All of our sales processes today are based on recognizing seller behavior and sale seller actions, right? You know, you pop open your new CRM and what are the stages, right? Like discovery, qualification, demo, proposal, close. If you go back in 1898, Elias St. Omo Lewis, he theorized that all buyers go through a journey that looks a lot like Glenn Gary Glenn Ross said in 1992 with AIDA, right? That we as human beings, we pay attention, We then develop an interest, we then develop a desire, and then we take action. And that's that's buying, right? And that became the basis of every selling process and sales forecast methodology from 1898 to at least the 1930s. Hmm. As a matter of fact, in 1925, in Elmer Ellsworth Ferris's book, he basically doesn't even talk about AIDA other than to say, it's AIDA, every salesperson knows it, right? And so that was the, always the lens, looking at it through recognizing buyer behavior. Are they paying attention? Are they interested? Have they developed a desire? And are they ready to take action? And today, we've kind of flipped that to where it's all seller activity-based. And as a result, I, I think we've lost something. So what is buying? Well, we as human beings, if it's not AIDA, it's essentially... We decide whether or not our status quo is sustainable, right? Do we need to do something different tomorrow than we're doing today? So why change? It then becomes why you or what option am I going to go down the path with to change my status quo? And then it becomes why now, right? Is this something I should do now? Is this worth the priority? Is the juice worth the squeeze versus the other places I can spend my time, my resources, and my money? And so that. It's kind of my perspective on buying, but 
salespeople aren't thinking about that and they still don't and sales processes don't support the buying journey. One of the really interesting questions that I've been wrestling with the last month or so is why is it that so much of sales is built upon um, the ideas of Skinner and Taylor, 19th and 20th century management and uh, sales uh, belief, which may have been relevant at the time when salespeople had a monopoly on the knowledge. Then they could go and serve and they could do, you know, have their little professor, you know, properly satisfied. But in this day and age, buyers don't need that kind of seller. What they need is a seller who helps them understand and navigate and see round corners, not someone who's trying to put their hand in your pocket. So how do we get back to the idea of service whilst serving the needs of the shareholders because they're not going to go away and maintain a culture and an environment that means that salespeople always do what is right for the customer? And they're willing to play a longer, less selfish game. It's funny that you say that. 1912, Thomas Herbert Russell in his book, Salesmanship, he's got a quote, four words. Buyers know more nowadays. <laughs> right? And it was talking about the proliferation of mail order and cataloging and the proliferation of advertising as a threat to the sales profession, saying, Buyers aren't going to really need salespeople like they did before because we no longer have all the information and buyers can do their own homework. And what happened? Well, the sales profession flourished. You skip forward to 2015 when Forrester, so it was April of 2015, Forrester issues their state of sales report. And in it, it says that in five years, so by April of 2020, 1 million B2B sales jobs would go away. And hundreds of thousands of selling uh, or of college graduates would not graduate into the profession because buyers knew more because of the rise of e-commerce being a threat to the sales profession. What happened by 2020? The opposite happened. Mm -hmm. What keeps happening is that when we see this threat to the selling profession, you've got some sellers that go the wrong way and right, and they start pounding and. That's what creates this latest data from Gallup that says that 72% of salespeople or of buyers want a rep-free selling experience. Of course they do, right? Most salespeople suck. Yeah. And we're able to do our own homework, right? And so it goes back to this idea that Arthur Sheldon in 1911, right? True salesmanship is the science of service. And so here, here's my little rant on that. And it it's what inspired, oh, go ahead, Marcus, you have a question? There? No, 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 go ahead, keep going. Yeah, so, you know, my last role, I was the chief revenue officer of a company called Power Reviews in Chicago. Probably guess we were in the review space, right? <laughs> and we did a research study with Northwestern University that changed my life, right? Like a lunatic, I quit my job and I wrote the book, The Transparency Sale. <laughs> and it, it has to do with this idea of sales as service. We did a research study that simply was looking at buyer behavior when a website's acting as a salesperson, right? What it came out with was three data points, two of which changed my life, like it only happened to a nerd. The, the data point that didn't was that we all read reviews today. So all of you that are listening, read reviews, right? When you're buying something you haven't bought before, that's of medium to high consideration, we all do it. 
But the two data points that changed my life, number one was that, like, are you one of those weirdos that reads the negative reviews first? Like you skip the fives and go right to the fours, threes, twos, and ones first? Mm -hmm. Well, turns out that doesn't make you a weirdo, it makes you a human being. That 85% of us read the negative reviews first, which is weird, right? And then the last data point is that a product on a five-star scale across all product categories, but when it has an average review score between a 4.2 and a 4.5, that's optimal for purchase conversion. Meaning a product that has negative reviews right under it sells better than a product that's got nothing but perfect five-star reviews. Matter of fact, product that's got nothing but perfect five-star reviews sells at the same conversion rate as a product that's got an average review score of around a 3.25. Meaning when we are presenting our solutions as perfect, we are actually making it harder for buyers to make decisions, not easier. And when we lead, again, remember that 85%, because as it turns out, this isn't just when a website's acting as a, hum as a salesperson, it's when a human being is too, in a B2B world. That 85% data point, when we lead with what we give up to be great at our core, what we're not good at, what you might not like, what our pricing is. And if you're going to have some heartburn with that, like, let's talk about that now. We build trust. We help buyers predict. We aid in the entire journey where they not only buy, but they're more likely to buy more, they're more likely to stay, and they're more likely to advocate on our behalf. That was the concept of the transparency sale and how to apply it. But that's what providing a service is to buyers. More information has not made it easier on buyers. It's made it harder. Yeah. But if we look through the lens of, hey, let's do the homework for the buyers, the pros, the cons, and help them predict, that's what salespeople can and, embrace as a service profession. Well, two things. First of all, can I have a few four-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, please? Because I've only got five and no one pays any attention. Well, it's got to be real, though. If they think yeah, it's yeah, a no, five, they, but the, market yeah, re Real reviews, but give me four stars. Don't give me five if you're going to give me five. <laughs> the other thing is, in this day and age with AI, I've spent the last three months or so buried in this stuff, um, seeing what it's what is possible with it. There is no excuse for any salesperson ever to turn up unprepared, unpracticed, unrehearsed yes. in positive, neutral, and negative responses. Every objection, every question, every request for information, and every answer that can possibly be given in your world, because yes. all of it can be predicted. Ideal midwife, lots of deals. And with down to the actual wording of their response, we predict. All of that is possible. The AI is there as a coach. If you don't know how to use it, get in touch, for God's sake. Because well, if you I'll tell you, one of my clients will be eating your lunch. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because that's the thing. It's We've always known that transparency sells better than perfection. Like, I got a digital book from 1742 that's got like a whole chapter on honesty, right? Like, we've always known that. But because of this proliferation of reviews and feedback, we have to do it now, right? Because buyers know how to go to Google and go, your company reviews and read that. But to your point about chat, when I've been prepping to give keynotes and do workshops with clients on this topic, I go in and I write, why shouldn't I buy from, and I put your company name in. And, you know, some of these things are 300 word descriptions with five bullet points that are telling me why I shouldn't go with you. 
If you don't think your buyers know how to go to ChatGPT, sign up for a free account and type that in. Maybe they can't yet, but give I, it a few weeks. They're going to figure it out. Well, I interviewed Jill Robbins and I was talking to her about how procurement is using AI and how they're going to be using it. So one thing they're going to do, if you're in manufacturing, they're going to reverse engineer your pricing and your costs. Um, it used to take a battery of 20 Indian, Indian mathemat uh, mathematicians a month to do what can be done in 20 seconds on ChatGPT now. If they have access to the data, and there is now FinChat, which gets up-to-date current financial information, reports and accounts, uh, letters from Warren Buffett, and uh, transcriptions from annual uh, general meetings and uh, quarterly reports and so on. And off the back of that, you can then start to get a measure the sentiment and the changing emotion of the officers of a company. I mean, wow, it just yeah. blows my mind. And people are being too damn lazy to use it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's why we have to get back as a profession to honesty and service, right? I mean, we have to. Like anything that smells of dishonesty is going to be revealed instantly. And again, for I'm that one time. deal you win, because you pushed it through, you're losing five deals that you didn't even hear about because it's so easy for that word to spread and for individuals to do their homework before they even reach out to you. So that's the 3555 rule. If you do a good job, people might tell three others. If you do a bad job, they'll tell five, he'll tell 55 others. Yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. That's it. Exactly. And so it's, I see, you know, I was doing a keynote for a company a few weeks ago. And I was telling the story of how I, I received an inbound lead where an individual was like, Todd, we've heard great things about you. We need like top of funnel, like prospecting social selling help. And so like, what programs do you have around that? And I was like, I could do it. I've got programs about that. But if you made a list of the top 50 people that do that, I'd come in at about number 47. Can I make a couple of recommendations for you? Because I know the people that are at the top two or three, and I would love to refer you over to them. And what ends up happening every time is they go, yes, like, I'd love to hear that. I didn't know that that's not your expertise. I give them the referrals, but they're like, Todd, what is it that you do? Where's your focus? And I end up getting the deals anyway. As I said that in the, the chat, somebody wrote, no, to, and I was like, all right, whoever just wrote no, like, let's talk about it. And they were like, gosh, in this economy, we have to get every piece of revenue we can get our hands on, right? Like if we've got an interested client, like, and then I was like, so when they buy and they realize it's not a perfect fit, what do you do? And they're like, well, we just manage to the dissatisfaction. No, like my answer became no. Like, you you just push the problem downstream to someone else and, and in order you to make it your five point. To your point and this about is, the 55. Right, but, the, but this is um, a failure of joined up thinking at a leadership level because if you overemphasize finance, if you overemphasize just one aspect or the easy stuff to measure or what's familiar, you don't look at the bigger picture. These are complex systems businesses. Yes. And as you start adding just one more person, you can add at least another six layers of complexity because they've got their parents and their grandparents on their shoulders, as well as their screwed up um, brains. So it's really messy. 
And you can't do this by throwing point solutions or money at the problem without thinking about how you join it up. So tell me what was different back then to now in terms of the way businesses uh, work together in unison. You know, it's funny that back then, again, there was no blowhorn by which you could make a complaint, right? Like you've had a bad experience. What are you going to do? Like get out your typewriter and write them a letter? You know, who cares? You know, their ability to share peer reviews didn't exist. And so as a result, when economies got tough, you did start to see a lot more of this, a lot more of jamming solutions and convincing buyers, and then just dealing with the ramifications later. And so back when selling, true selling, the modern sales profession was being birthed, right? 1890, like 1890s with NCR and Burroughs adding machine up through the 1920s before that depression, they really viewed selling as a service profession, right? And that the whole organization working together to make sure that customers not only bought, but every time you came back in the town, they couldn't wait to see you. Mm-hmm. And, and we got away from that. And I'm, again, it goes back to, you know, revenue at all costs and individuals that started to see metrics and numbers instead of eye to eye, human to human contact. And honestly, I blame technology for that. You know, there's a certain element of, you know, this guy right here, this 1908 uh, Swedish <laughs> American telephone that I have here, where you you combine the 1920, early 1920s depression, and then coming out of it, and then the Great Depression, with the proliferation of technologies like the telephone, which meant, I don't have to look at you anymore. I don't have to press the flesh. I don't have to shake your hand. I don't and have to travel. Right. I don't have to travel. I don't even have to put shoes on. I can start to prioritize my numbers and my metrics and have this. Can I, one little side story here. I had a conversation with a client yesterday, and I, I hope they're not listening to this because they're going to be like, God. But we were talking about their win rate and their win rate. They used to have a 35% win rate. So qualified opportunities that enter the pipeline, 35% of them closing. Okay. All right, not the greatest. 65% loss rate, though. Well, here's the funny part. Over the last two years, it has dropped all the way to 10%. And the conversation I was having with their CEO, our CEO and CMO yesterday, first, first argument they were having was about lead attribution. And I finally, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm asking not to be rude, but because I really want to know. Who cares? <laughs> like, who cares? And then number two is the CMO started talking about how like they need to get really better at more in the top of the funnel. If the win rate goes down, we need to load more into the top. And I was just like, no, no, you're like, like, and so there's still a lot of like this misthought there that as win rates go down, we need more in the top of the funnel to get more to come out the bottom. And I'm like, that's okay. So just just for clarification, more is not better. Better is better. More is more. If you do more of what doesn't work, it just makes you increasingly stupid. Don't do it. Exactly. Ask yourself the question, is there a better way? Instead of banging your head on every step as you fall down the stairs, ask yourself, well, what are we doing to cause this rise of 300 or 250% in the wrong prospects entering our pipeline? Exactly. How can we prevent that from happening? 
What yeah. can we do to free up our salespeople to spend more time on the 10 or, and eventually 35% and only then? Yeah, it's I believe insane. when you look at like, let's go to everybody's favorite retailer in the world for a minute, Ikea. Ah. Right, like, it, it, Ikea, the number one furniture retailer in the world for 14 straight years and the entire experience is a disaster, right? Like you walk in, they have to give you a map. Like, hey, here's hell on earth for you. Good luck. You find what you're looking for. You have to go to a warehouse to pull the boxes yourself onto a cart that doesn't have brakes, jam it in the back of your car Tetris style, F-bombing the whole way through, taking it home, opening the box. There's 150 parts, no words on the work instructions other than like Svarta or whatever that scan it And And you, what ends up happening is when you get done, you're like, hey, honey, we should go get the end tables to match this. Like, <laughs> and, and Why does that happen? I think step one is branding, right? That you expectation brand, the pros and the cons, so that everybody walking into an Ikea knows exactly what they're getting into. And when they leave, they're not dissatisfied, even though the experience was freaking hell on earth. And <laughs> and so I think every, I mean, you look at like Sam's Clubs, Costco's, like the bulk warehouses where if I need ranch dressing, I get one choice. It's Hidden Valley Ranch, so no brand selection, and I got to buy like a freaking tank of it. And they're not like they're going to check my receipt on the way out to make sure I didn't steal anything. Yeah. And I needed to pay to walk in. I needed to get a, their subscription renewal rate is like ninety eight percent, and that sucks, right? That I think step one is is expectation setting and branding. Brand what you give up to be great at your core. Brand that four two to four five that I talked to you about earlier, and you end up with pre-qualified individuals that come in that are more likely to stay and buy more and advocate. And, and I think it starts there. I mean, there's lots more. I mean, like diagnosing this company that I talked to yesterday, there's something about them showing up and realizing that what they're about to buy is much different than what their expectation was when they signed up for the demo or the initial conversation and they're leaving, but just at the bottom line, every lead has a cost. Every lead has a cost, and you've got to recognize that. And we need to be really clear about the hidden costs. You know, when you think about the hidden costs, wrong hires, because we've been hiring for years for the wrong attributes. We've not been hiring well-organized customer-focused, service-minded individuals. We've been hiring basically robber barons and pillagers to go out there and try and uh, transact, um, and whether it's good for the customer or not. Then we compensate and measure them in such a way that it drives the wrong behaviors. One of the things I'm looking at at the moment very closely is compensation that will drive retention and expansion. I'm not interested in the transaction. I want a customer who'll be a customer in five, 10, 15 years, and they'll be buying everything from us and they'll be informing us what we need to produce next so that we can mass market that to our mass market. That to me is a good customer. And that's what my job is in sales. It's to find people like that and then serve them, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think I've been looking into a different element that you just kind of talked about here. And it's this idea that in today's economy, too, I'm talking to lots of leaders that are very much of, they look at their line managers and they're like, 
that person's not getting it. I'm going to have to part from them. And that part, we're not hitting numbers over there. I'm going to have to part with them. And I'm like, hey, listen, um, I, I think the one thing that we've got to get better at from a recruiting perspective is the identification of intrinsic inspiration, meaning the individuals that I'm hiring, are they A, capable of learning and have a capacity to learn? And B, can we cultivate a thirst for learning, an unquenchable thirst for learning and getting better? And when you combine those two things, it goes back to this idea of we identify somebody, they're not working, we have to hit short-term goals, but your answer is I'm going to fire that person and then I'm going to roll the dice and see if I find somebody who's better. And it's going to take me six to 18 months to ramp them up and then we'll figure out whether they're any better. I'm okay. like, we, we need to double down on looking at these individuals that we hire. Are they capable of learning and are they inspired to learn? And then let's get really good at optimizing for the science of learning and see if we can make those individuals better. Because if they're all in and you're parting ways because they're not getting it and you're not providing the way for them to get it, you're actually pushing the can down the road and creating yeah. higher risk instead of lower risk. Well, th th this is where we have two major misunderstandings. The first is that your middle management layer's job is not to manage, i.e. it's not to supervise and control things. In fact, if you look at the early uh, meaning of manage, it means to trick or deceive. Oh. So again, the, the reality is people do things for their reasons. In the same way, buyers don't buy willingly if you convince them. They have to find their reasons for wanting to convince themselves and be willing to do it. People come to work. People sell for their own reasons. And what I've found, having worked with thousands of salespeople over the years, is that, first of all, there is no such thing as a natural-born salesperson. No one pops out their mother's womb able to sell. You know, interesting question. Why do you ask, Todd? So that doesn't happen. It's all learned. It's an acquired skill. Now, they have to have an aptitude for it, but it doesn't have to be great. But they do have to have a curiosity and a willingness to learn and pay attention. And as they get more successful, they also have to have an incredible tolerance for boredom because a lot of what we do is repetitive. Th these are not qualities that we generally look for in salespeople. And you've hit the nail right on the head because it all starts with recruitment. If you get recruitment wrong, you have a slew of management problems. But the recruitment and development of the right managers is one of the areas that I see has gone completely to pot because typically the, uh, the people who get promoted into management were people who produced better than the rest in the belief that somehow they could transfer that capability, which is rarely the case. Only 6% of managers, according to Jonathan Farrington's study in 2019, of sales managers were fit for purpose, which is a terrifyingly low statistic. And it's not their fault. They've been thrown in at the deep end and they either do what was done to them or they do what was done, uh, what they believe is best. And you're gonna bring out the transparent manager, hopefully. No, I'm going to bring, this is a book from, um, oh, what year is it? This one's a good one. 1909. I wish you could smell it because it smells like history, but it <laughs> talks about sales management and it goes into exactly what's what it called. Um, it's just called Modern Business Sales Management from the Alexander Hamilton Institute. And it, 
uh, there's a part that I've tabbed here that is literally what you just said, <laughs> but 114 years ago, right? Yeah. And, and it, it talks about this idea of the importance of sales management as the economy gets tighter too, right? And like we look at today and they, you know, as selling gets harder, you need sales leaders who are able to cultivate that kind of environment where your team is still intrinsically inspired to go out there and do it. But it requires sales leadership skill. And what I find across the industries right now is, hey, we're spending less money and less time investing in our leaders. And just like, you figure it out, right? And we just keep like, we make the problem so much worse. And again, they nailed it back then. On the Sales History Podcast, which is my monologue podcast, I have an episode a few episodes ago on the history of sales management, and it talks about this topic precisely and how it relates to today. So again, I think good salespeople and good managers and good leaders need to be students of history. And we, we need to understand how society changes and how tough economies create tough people. Strong economies create weak people, which create weak economies. Yes. And you need to understand that cycle. You need to understand the context in which your buyers buy and your sellers sell. And very importantly, the context in which your managers manage. Because if you're putting them under enormous pressure, what you're effectively doing, not only are you making them sick and more likely to churn, but you're also switching off the clever bit of their brain, uh, which is responsible for rational thought, logic and reason and language. Yes. And then you're causing them to do the same to their salespeople and putting them out into the field and then put buyers under pressure where you trigger the disgust and contempt response in their brains. This is not working, people. Exactly. Okay? It's unnecessary to behave in this way. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, fear is a motivator. Like if you're in a boat and there's a shark chasing you, you're going to roll like no tomorrow, but it creates that survival mode, right? Where we are at our least creative, we are at our least, like it's not sustainable. And so if as leaders, we're creating these fearful environments for our leaders and then their reps, your team is not sleeping as well as they could. And as a result, when we don't sleep as well, we don't perform as well. And to your point, when we don't perform as well and don't sleep as well, we're less creative. And when we're fear, like fearful, as it turns out, fear is contagious. Yep. Confidence is contagious. Transparency is contagious. Fear is contagious. And if we're walking into environments where we're anxious and fearful, your buyers lose confidence in you and they become fearful. And as a result, they're less likely to buy too. Like it's this, you nailed it, Marcus. It goes all the way down to we've got to create environments where our team goes to bed at night, knowing what they're getting themselves into, sleeping well, performing great, their highest level of, of creativity. And then again, transparency begets transparency. Provide a service to your clients, right? Transparency sells better than perfection. And due to the proliferation of all of this information and chat GPT, we got to do it anyway. So embrace that. And the magic comes from it. Faster- um cycles, higher win rates, better qualification in and out, and you make it harder on your competitors to message against you. And it's easier for you. Exactly. You less work for more money, and you get referred a lot, which means your conversion rate goes up. It and seems so obvious. Really it, it seems so obvious, yet 
I'm talking every day to people that have gone back to this 1980s approach, whatever, like, and like, it, it just seems so obvious to people like us. And I, I'm doing everything I can, Marcus, to get the word out. It's just. <laughs> okay. Well, Todd, unfortunately, because of my uh, poor uh, technical ca uh, capabilities, we've got to wrap up now. However, I definitely want to continue this conversation. I also want to include you in a project that I'm working on with Tom Williams and with Pat Bacusis um, on trying to pull together a manifesto. Now, I'm taking a very holistic view. Pat brought in um, a PhD student who's uh, exited his business and um, for several hundred million after having learned the hard way that he had to learn how to sell and do it ethically and transparently. So I think this could be a really interesting group of people to beat this topic to death and then eventually come up with a framework that other people might want to buy into. So if anyone is curious about this, please uh, get in touch um, through the notes or through uh, comments. And if you've got questions about this or suggestions, then please let us have them. Todd, how can people get hold of you? Well, the uh, toddcaponi.com is the clearest way. It's got links to everything. And then if you want to nerd out on some of this history stuff, the Sales History Podcast, you can get it wherever you listen. It's just 10 to 20 minute monologues of me nerding out on a specific topic as it relates to history. And I... It, it's my outlet, and I, I hope you love it. So those are really the two core it, ways. And it then, of is course, absolutely diamond, really worthwhile. Thank you. Do you have any um, events or anything coming up, any new books coming? No, not on the horizon yet. I've just been executing. I'm doing lots of keynotes and speeches and training workshops for clients all over the place. Okay. Business is good. I mean, people are listening, and I'm starting to see the fruits of that. Uh, as clients and companies are starting to embrace this idea of selling as a service. And uh, hopefully we can continue to spread the good word. Excellent. Todd Capone, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. It's awesome seeing you as always. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. That was fabulous. So get in touch. There's a link if you want to talk to me about uh, coaching and training and mentoring. And in the meantime, stay safe, happy selling and just be human. Bye.